Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scorse and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. Hope everybody is doing great while we're in a real zombie apocalypse. Uh, crazy times here. Uh, I wish my half-joking title of this podcast had not come to fruition, but when we elect racist, incompetent con men, this is what happens. And uh, obviously Trump is not responsible for the coronavirus, but he is absolutely responsible for the corrupt, incompetent, and insane response that sadly is going to lead to a lot of people needlessly dying, a lot of economic damage, needlessly harming people, and uh, hopefully one day we will be a sane country and we will learn from our mistakes and go forward with wisdom and uh, intelligence. In the interim, uh, we're going to keep working on it. And so for today's episode, I have David Roberts uh, from Vox. He is a senior writer there. His main beat is environmental journalism, which is where I first got introduced to him. Uh, But he's really gotten a lot bigger than that and just kind of larger critiques of politics and particularly the right wing and the kind of false equivalencies in the media. We talk about that a lot in, in this interview David's been on the podcast a number of times, and uh, I've really just, my respect for him has just grown over the years, as I think his environmental reporting is the best in the country, and his uh, you know political analysis is incredibly astute and just worth taking very seriously. So without further ado, I bring you David Roberts. Okay, so we are here with David Roberts uh, from Vox to have another wide-ranging conversation on all things environmental and political. So, David, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Glad to be here. All right. So, one of the articles that I've recently read of yours that I really enjoyed was about these Oregon Republicans who have once again left left town literally just kind of went AWOL to block a, uh, a Democratic vote on a cap-and-trade bill uh, that they had a supermajority to pass. And you've been really kind of on top of this. This is really kind of extreme anti-Democratic behavior, but they seem to be getting away with. And uh, I'll, I'll put a link to your article in the, in the show notes, but just wanted to see if you could give us a little kind of a refresher on this, an update, and how all that has played out. Sure. Uh, There's a requirement in the Oregon state constitution that says a a quorum, which means uh, the minimal, the minimum number of legislators uh, necessary for the legislature to do business. Uh, A quorum is two thirds of the state legislature, two thirds of the House and two thirds of the Senate, which means that even though uh, Democrats have majorities in both houses, which they finally secured in the last election, <clears throat> there are enough Republicans in the state Senate that if they all hang together and just walk out, just refuse to show up, they can deny the body a quorum. I think uh, uh, like one of them <laughs> has to show up to get to a quorum, but they're, but they're unified. So, um, so the last, the last, in the last 10 months, you know, last year they walked out um, over uh, <clears throat> a budget bill and a gun bill, and then they walked out last session over the cap and trade bill, and then they walked out over something else. I, I, at one point they walked out because they thought that Democrats were working them too hard, that like things were going too fast in the legislature, and they didn't want to work that night, <laughs> like so. So it's 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 a typical it's a very typical feature of our political life, which is Republicans discovered at some point that there's a quirk or a loophole in the law such that it's not they can do something that's clearly anti-democratic. Right. That clearly has not been done before. 
but wasn't done before based on a norm, right? Not a law, just an unspoken rule. We just don't do that. And so they discover these things and we're like, oh, well, we can do that. It's not against the law. And then immediately, like almost immediately, it goes from an extraordinary thing, you know, this sort of like we're taking this extraordinary measure because of some extreme situation we're in to like once they do it a couple of times, you could saw like over the course of 10 months, it just almost instantly just became routine now. And they just now view it as a routine, normal part of democratic legislating that when something happens that they don't like, they just walk out even though they're in a tiny minority. It's, uh, it's insane. So they did it again. <laughs> the first time they did it last session, part of the agreement for them to come back and start working again was a signed agreement with the Democratic head of the, of the, of the Senate saying, we will not walk out like Dems will drop these two bills we don't like for this session. And in exchange, we won't walk out again this session. And they walked out again less than a month later. And of course, if you ask them, they're like, oh, well, they violated the agreement because blah, 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 which is just they just like Democrats did something that made them grumpy. Like the, the, the sort of like attitude they're taking on this is like, well, of course we don't have to sit and watch things that we don't want to happen, happen. That's outrageous. How can you expect us to do that? <laughs> like we, we have to represent our constituents and do everything we can, to, you know? So they just walk out routinely now, but this time, this latest session, um, they walked out again over the cap and trade bill and then stayed gone for a week and then had just the like cosmic gall to tell Democrats in the state legislature of Oregon, we will return for one day. We will return for the last day of the session and only to pass these necessary budget bills that fund the things that we like and also want funded, you know, just like, right. just like we'll, we'll do this little bit of business and Democrats like who honestly have been rolling over for this over and over and over again in typical democratic fashion, wringing their hands, begging them to come back, just being weak, weak, weak. Finally, Oregon Democrats said, you know what? Like F you, we're just ending the session. We're just shutting it down. So they didn't agree to this one day thing. They just shut the whole session down and nothing passed. So now, um, now there's a group of, uh, there, there's some groups in Oregon, uh, citizen groups, and I think they're working with state uh, Democrats trying to develop a ballot measure, a ballot initiative that they can put directly to the voters that would change this stupid provision of the constitution and restore something like small d democracy to Oregon. Just like, but but the, the overall lesson I take from this is less about the quirks of the Oregon state constitution than, and this is the point I make in the piece, is this is just illustrative to me of a national trend in the Republican Party, which is they care <laughs> less and less about democracy. Like as, as their white rural and suburban Christian, you know, demographic, which is almost exclusively the, the Republican Party now is, is those people, as that demographic shrinks, their, their domination over society, their, their, their privilege shrinks with it, and they find that intolerable. And if they have to choose between clinging onto power and throwing democracy overboard or just accepting the results of of demographic and, and economic shifts they're going to throw democracy overboard you see it at the national level you see it at the state level you see it everywhere they believe at their core that white rural and suburban americans christian americans with you know blue collar jobs or whatever that whole mythos those people are more essentially american more essentially Oregonian than other people in the state and deserve to get their way. And if they don't want something to happen, it shouldn't happen regardless of democracy, regardless of how many votes their opponents get. Like they believe that they ought to have veto power in Oregon and nationally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's put aside for a moment the fact that I think actually 
obviously this isn't new, right? I mean, the, the kind of the, the voter suppression and kind of anti-democracy is as old as America, right? And, and, and so, but, but you're right, it's, it's a new iteration, certainly, uh, as, their, as their numbers dwindle. But interestingly, I want to talk about the fix that you just mentioned, because I remember in reading your piece that the Republic, that they were arguing, well, let's put the cap and trade as a ballot initiative, right? Because they're thinking right. we can go, you know, and get all our corporate fossil fuel people, and then, it, you know, we can defeat it at the ballot and then kind of subvert democracy that way. But it seems what, what you're saying is the Democrats, at least finally, after getting pummeled for this last, you know, year plus, have kind of turned the tables on them. Because now that seems quite a, a smart fix is let's put a ballot initiative for real democracy, which I imagine would pass pretty overwhelmingly if it's at least messaged appropriately. So what do you see about, do you, do you think it's a good strategy and do you think this might finally overcome this kind of weird quirk that they've exploited? Well, you know, I've, I've tried to get out of the business of, <laughs> of making predictions these days since who the hell knows what's going to happen, but it seems smart to me. I mean, it's, it's the problem with, this is what Republicans always do, right? Like if they had genuinely reserved this option, this walkout option for one or two key like emergency priorities, they could have pulled this off. They could have kept the media both sides in this. They could have like, they could have kept it going, but of course they just immediately overreached. They just immediately are like, Oh, we have this new toy. Let's play with it all the time. Like, let's just walk out every time we, friggin' feel like it. And so they've made it very clear that democracy can't operate in Oregon. Like you just can't run a democracy that way. If a tiny minority has veto power, democracy, small d democracy becomes impossible. And so, and so they forced Democrats hand in a sense on this. And yes, I think, um, <clears throat> you know, there's actually, I think, two ballot initiatives under under discussion. One would, I think, directly change the Constitution, and one would just impose fines or even, I think, maybe prison sentences on legislators that walked out. I'm not sure which one will end up passing. And it's great. And, like, yes, it might eliminate this route to anti-democratic minority rule, right? But what we know about Republicans is that they are devoted more and more and more to anti-democratic white minority rule. So just once I'd like to see Democrats get a step ahead of this instead of just being reacting to one, right, to one sort of abrogation of norms after another and just like think ahead, like how can we anticipate for once the next anti-democratic move, you know, like the next thing they do instead of just sort of like showing this, shock and surprise every time Republicans do a new thing like that's just like who they are now it's time to internalize it so so let, let's take that for a moment because I think that's really interesting you know I think you're absolutely right the Democrats have been reactive at best right if anything you know I mean they've, they've really fallen down on the job I'd really say the last 15 20 years really since the Bush regime because if you go back there I mean I keep telling people our historical memory is quite uh, short here because this has been going on for decades this is not this is not a new phenomenon but but let's put that aside and say so if 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 David Roberts was in charge of strategy here thinking about this more forward looking proactive view what what type of things do you think would be in that type of package well I don't know <laughs> is my problem. Like for like for one thing, I don't know that I know the the intricacies of Oregon well enough to 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 try to make ground level strategy for them. But on the but if we could take this question national, I think I mean I, I think this question faces Democrats nationally and at every at every level, almost every level of government. So like nationally I know better. And this is, you know, I wrote a uh, a big post about this about Warren uh, uh, lately because I feel like Warren, Elizabeth Warren, understood this in a way that none of the other candidates do. But it's the same thing on the national level. There are all these old practices and old rules and quirks and just sort of cruft that have developed over the years, all of which lean in the same direction. They make it more difficult to do anything. They make it, they, they put more veto points 
in legislating and in regulating, they put they slow things down more. And Warren understood that if you want to do all these grand things that the left wants to do, universal health care, whatever tighter financial restrictions, I mean, uh, you have to fix the rules. You have to fix the institutions and rules because right now they're tattered, they're underfunded, they're swamped under a ridiculous set of structural barriers that give the sort of white minority a permanent leg up. And they're just fighting with like one and a half hands tied behind their backs. And, and you know, just to, just to focus in on, a, on one particular issue, both Warren and and, and Bernie, and I think Biden, as far as I know, every Democrat wants to raise taxes on rich people, wants to pay for some, some pretty substantial social, social programs with money taken from the wealthy. But right now, if you have a look at the IRS, it is a shell of itself. It literally is incapable of collecting the current taxes due from rich people like there's it, it, because over, over years republicans who again are much smarter about this stuff than dems have realized that like operative institutions hurt us and help our opponents so they've very they've been very focused very deliberately focused on crippling the irs on passing rules that make it harder to do its job on defunding it on de-staffing it and so now uh, uh, just enforcement of tax law on the rich has been declining and declining and declining and instead the irs is out doing audits of working class people because they can do that with just the documents on hand and it's cheap and it's easy. So like the amount of taxes that we're not collecting from rich people that are owed to the U.S. right now is already like in the billions and billions. So if we just ramp that up, we don't have an IRS that could do that. And you could just you could do the same thing across across the whole government. Like we've got to get the rules and institutions in place if we want to do all these uh, ambitious things. And that means doing something about the Electoral College, doing something about voter suppression, doing something about gerrymandering, the filibuster, I mean, uh, unlimited money in politics. All of these are structural structural disadvantages that Democrats have just become accustomed to to fighting under, right? Like it's, they're so old and familiar that we just like, they become invisible. But like, it's really important for every Democrat in the country to remember that if this was an actual democracy, if the US was an actual democracy, Democrats and the rising dem Democrat um, uh, demographics, there are more of them. They have more, there are, they have more people. In a democracy, they would be winning. In a democracy, we would have universal health care. In a democracy, we would be taxing rich people more already. We would have these things already. So I just think that is something, that's a drum that like people like you and I have been beating for years and years. Like I was ranting on about the filibuster back in whatever, 2005 or, or whatever. But I think the National Democratic Coalition is waking up to it and these state parties are waking up to it because the, the sort of anti-democratic fervor of the national party is infecting state Republican parties too. And so even state democratic parties are like, whoa, like there's the comedy is gone. Like it's, it's, it's everybody for themselves. Now we've got to start paying attention to the rules and institutions and not just going on and on about these grand policy goals that we have no way of achieving. Yeah, I think I think your point about the IRS is is particularly kind of accurate in the sense that, I mean, the Democrats have signed off on these budgets that have gutted the IRS. And in fact, some of these were passed under, you know, Obama's presidency. This has been a, a steady drip. And for whatever reason, you know, the Republican entrenched saying, you know, we won't vote for the bill or we won't give you X, Y and Z if you don't cut this. But they've kind of gone along. And I think you're right that it's been a real lack of strategic thinking. And, uh, and uh, the Republicans, I mean, I, we hate to say it, but you know, they're, they're evil, but they're, they're a lot, they've been a lot smarter. They really have been. I mean, they have, they have leveraged these minority powers to maximum extent. I mean, almost to, you know, obviously with the, the Merrick Garland and everything being the pride of the, the kind of crown glory of that strategy. And it has been incredibly effective and it has really, yeah, it's, it's also, it's also just worth noting that, 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 like on the IRS thing, for instance, this is not an example of Republicans pursuing their 
ideological preferences in a coherent way, right? Because they hate government, but there's nothing in conservative philosophy that's against collecting taxes that are due. And in fact, by cutting the IRS budget, the government is not saving money. It's losing billions of dollars in tax collection, right? Like, so there's no, there's no version of fiscal conservatism under which this makes sense. The only reason to go after the IRS the way they have is to protect rich people. They don't even, they don't even, like they, they don't even have to pretend to be doing a coherent ideological program here. Like they're out in the open now. And I just wish we could all talk about it out in the open instead of this sort of ridiculously like roundabout way we tend to talk about these things. Absolutely. No, all right. 100% agreement on that. Uh, I, you know, just kind of swinging back to the Oregon piece for a moment, you know, I wanted to kind of talk about a point you make at the end. So, you know, you, at the end of your article, when you kind of go through the details of how this is all played out, you make a pretty, you know, a firm, strong claim that this is really kind of white supremacy in action, right? This is a small, you know, a vocal white minority in a state that has become, you know, in a, in a kind of a microcosm of America, a much more multicultural, kind of educated populace. And so it's this white minority vetoing the kind of multicultural majority. And I am the first one to say that I think the, the amount that the media talks about the racism in the Republican Party is really understated. I think the, the, the GOP and the GOP base is systematically and, you know, and egregiously racist. So I am, I, I am definitely one of those who agree with that. But interestingly, in this, in this example, I'm not sure if the white supremacy and the racism is the, is the most kind of uh, salient point here for me in the sense that this seems almost more of a rural urban divide where these are kind of rural kind of your extractive industries, your loggers, you know, your fishermen, your miners against the kind of cosmopolitan educated, you know, urban class. It maps perfectly onto racial composition because of this, the way Oregon is. But I just wonder if, if that's more the dominant battle here, the urban rural, not the kind of white non-white. Well, I think it is, um, I mean, obviously it's both. Like one of the, <clears throat> you know, my colleague Ezra has, has come out with a book uh, uh, recently about polarization and political identity. And one of the points he makes that the political science literature has been making for a long time is that the U.S., for a variety of reasons, um, has sort of entered this alignment where, uh, where identities have become stacked is the, is the term for it. Meaning that like, like, you used to have a set of disparate identities that were some that, that in some ways cross cut one another. But what's happened is as all as we've sorted in America by 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 race, by income, by even by personality, you, you know, what's happened is all these identities have lined up with one another. So so like one of the things they can tell you is like political scientists can tell you almost everything about your politics by virtue of the distance of where you live from a Whole Foods, right? And the, re and the reason they can do that is that all the identities have become stacked. So if they learn that one thing about you, you're close to a Whole Foods, they can tell you like what kind of TV shows you like, right? What kind of food you like, who you vote for, like what celebrities you like, all, all the, uh, every, every fight has become the same fight, right? So, yes. so, you're absolutely right that that the substance of Republican objections in Oregon has to do with the 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 urban and rural thing. What they are saying is rural people are are unfairly uh, uh, victimized by this. But by the same token, if you just take that lens and strip away everything else, you see that when they started negotiating this democrats made concession after concession after concession the bill that they walked out over most recently rural areas of the state wouldn't even like it has a phased it has a, it has a phase in and rural areas of the state wouldn't even be affected for like five to ten years and even then their fuels would be exempted like like on the merits right rural people got protected 
in the bill, but it wasn't really about the merits, was it? Because it's not just about the rural thing, is it? It's all, it's, it's no coincidence that in the U.S., the rural-urban fight has always aligned in racial ways. And, and, and it was aligned that way at the very beginning, which is why the state constitution or the national constitution is written to protect and amplify the political power of rural people because it was built around the interests of rural white landowners who owned black slaves, right? So this, so these, so the sort of rural urban fight and the racial fight have always been aligned in the U.S. and are, and are completely inseparable. And I would just say this, so say that, say that Oregon Republicans wanted to pass some sort of bill loosening gun laws, right? And, and black Oregon lawmakers, 10 of them, 11 of them, enough to deny a quorum, walked out and said, we're just representing the interests of urban people right? Urban people are more at risk from gun violence. And we're going to walk out until we have the interests of urban people fairly represented. Do you think that the, the reaction would be the same? That the stories would be the same? Do you think the rhetoric coming out of the Republican Party would be the same? Do you think Republicans would say, oh, this is a perfectly legitimate maneuver to represent minority mm -hmm. interests. You know, like they're just fighting for their constituents. Do you think the media would indulge them this way? Do you think the media would be like, you know, maybe they have a point, maybe this weird constitutional quirk that by which they're not doing their jobs, maybe it's fine. No, uh, like, of course not. Like the fact that these rural and suburban people are white Christian gives them uh, a, a voice and a presumption of good faith in the U.S. that you cannot disentangle from race. So yeah. Yeah, like they're, they're, all, they're all mixed up together. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, I think particularly that last point is probably quite powerful because it's, it's more than just the Republican ideology, but it's the whole treatment in the media. It's the kind of the de facto... Uh, kind of respect that those opinions that, are given. That's, that's what I was trying to get at in my yeah. piece. Is like yeah. Yeah. we're all sitting around indulging this as though it's not patently and obviously on its face an anti-democratic coup. Yes. Like if any other group of people did this, right. there would be alarm. People would be wringing their hands about the crumbling of democracy. But if white people do it, they yeah. just get the benefit of the doubt. Like yeah. they're just yeah. presumed to be morally legitimate. And that's yeah. that's not extended to other groups. Yeah, I think that point is that that point I again I hundred percent concur with. And I think that's that's the real crux of the matter right there, is this deference that you're that you're pointing yes. out. Yes. Um okay, well one thing, you know, in that last comment that you just pointed out that makes me think here about, you know, how this might play out in Oregon is, you know, if this ballot initiative comes out and, and say the Democrats prevail and they get, you know, where they don't need the Republicans in the room, so whether they walk out or not, I wonder then if they play hardball and don't they come back with the original bills, right? Not the bills with all that deference made to the rural right. communities. That's a kind of payback. Like, hey, you guys, you know, we 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 did we we acted in good faith, you spit in our faces. Now we have democracy and fuck you. We're going to go for the real bill and you know, you lost your break. You know, any that would that would be the type of hardball I would really like to see Democrats play. Um, any any uh, crystal ball on that one? Uh, you know, we know we know better than that. <laughs> we know better than that. My Democrats, wishful thinking has has creeped Democrats in. are just like seemingly constitutionally incapable of that type of behavior, even though that type of behavior is absolutely the default. On the other side, Oregon Democrats, like National Democrats, just extend the presumption of good faith endlessly, right, try endlessly to compromise. I mean, they've just like, they have watered this bill down to nothing. And, and, and as an illustrative, you know, it might as well be a parable about, about the national dynamic all these concessions they made didn't change Republican rhetoric and behavior at all, not mm -hmm. one whit. So yeah. clearly, like, the substance of the bill wasn't really the focus, was it? So, yeah, I would love to see Democrats do that, but they just 
they just are so scared of like pundits and people in the sort of democratic elite who pride themselves on not being tribal, right? Who pride themselves on not being team players, right? Democratic coalition, especially the sort of hyper-educated politics followers that we know, just love being self-critical of Democrats. That's how they show their sort of intellectual independence to one another, right? They're constantly signaling to one another about how they're the cleverest and they're not like, they're not part of groupthink. So consequently, like Democrats have no groupthink. They have no group to, <laughs> to, to defend them when they do things like this. So like if Democrats tried to play hardball, you just get a bunch of hand wringing pundits and, and liberals saying, you know, I'm a liberal, but this concerns me because blah, blah, blah. They would just get a bunch of hand wringing right. and they would fall for it. They right. fall for that. Like Republicans get that kind of blowback and they're like, fuck you. We're, you know, who right. cares? All the, right. we, we know how the news cycle works these days. We right. know that no matter what we do, it's going to blow over yeah. in a week or two and no one will ever remember. And, and the gains that we pocketed will be real forever. So we're just going to blow through the, 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 the kind of hand wringing, yeah. but, but Democrats just can't seem to bring it's, themselves it's, it's, to do that. It's in the DNA. It's in the it DNA. Really, it does really. I mean, I wonder, like I've been wondering for well over a decade, I've been wondering for 20 years, like what would it take? Right. How many times yeah, are do you they need to get sand kicked on them right, before right. that starts to change? And I see it in younger, you know, you see it in younger Democrats, the younger generation of Democrats, the younger activists, the younger lawmakers that, their whole lives have been nothing but Republican fuckery. Nothing. Right. They've seen nothing since they became to political maturity, starting with Bush stealing the 2000 election, but just re Republican anti-democratic incompetence over and over and over and over again. I think they're fed up. But of course, as we know and can see as we open our browsers, the National Democratic Party remains run by... And in and in hoc to geezers yeah. <laughs> who are not who are not prepared for politics as it is as it is practiced and today. is waged today. Yeah, well, that, I think I think we should flag that for future conversation. Like the one when we start seeing that, when we start seeing Democrats playing hardball and kind of mirroring, and again, it, it's in the public interest. I mean, that's the irony of this is that. If Democrats played hardball, we would get better policy and we would have better outcomes for America, right? All the things they do to water down bills, whether it's the stimulus or the, the Affordable Care Act or maybe this climate change bill, always makes them worse. And it makes the outcome worse, which then makes the public less happy with them because they passed this big thing that actually wasn't that great. So maybe that day when they finally, finally kick into gear and start playing hardball, we can note that as maybe that's when the, the paradigm is finally. Yes, and, and maybe and another thing that's baffled me for 20 years is when the media, when the national political media will stop allowing themselves to be manipulated and played by Republicans. And the way we'll know that will happen will be when one of these types of episodes goes down, instead of saying, oh, they're squabbling, politicians are squabbling again, there's just this partisan fighting and nothing's getting done, blah, 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 which is exactly what Republicans want the public to hear, right? right. Exactly. They want yeah. the Republic, they want the public tuned out and, and cynical. Maybe someday the media could say, Democrats are trying to do a popular thing with an elected majority and Republicans are trying to impose their unpopular preferences with a minority, which is bad and undemocratic. Because otherwise, how is the general public right. even supposed to find out what's going on? Like, yeah. like yeah. we're having a minority white slow motion coup. Yeah. in this country and one of the reasons it's happening is that no one will tell the public what's yeah. happening like yeah. the, the the organ the, the the ways they receive their information filter that out and water that down and they just haven't been told and so they must be baffled by why yeah. things are such a shit show like they just have not been given an explanation yeah well as, as here we are you know three plus years into the trump regime and the media as you say just being played like a fiddle 
on a kind of minute by minute basis. That I, I think I have more faith and hope that the Democrats as a political party <laughs> can change than the media. I mean, <laughs> your bag, and I know you've been you've been on you know you've been on the front lines of this for decades, but. I mean, the media almost seems to almost be getting worse. I, I have to say it's almost worse because, again, like I, I keep saying like if, if we lived in a sane country, the headlines every day would be like another national emergency, the public at risk, incompetent administration risking the lives of, you know, it, it would just be, but it doesn't, you know, it, it really doesn't. And I, I don't, I, I don't, is it just, maybe it's the financial, I mean, you and Ezra and people like that know this better than me. And it's just the financial incentives. I don't know what it is, but I have less hope for the media than I do for the actual Democratic Party. Well, well, this, you know, on along both these lines, um, the 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 coronavirus is, is you know, an interesting is going to be an interesting case because <clears throat> what you have here is a a a villain that doesn't have a face. It can't be attached to an immigrant or a Democrat, right? <laughs> or, 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 you know, there's no, there's no scapegoat to attach it to. So it's just a problem with no villain, right? And so there's no way for Republicans to distract attention or to blame anyone. They're just supposed to handle this, right? And they are manifestly, visibly, very obviously in measurable ways bungling this in a way that is going to get people killed. It's literally going to lead very directly from cause to effect. Trump's going to fuck this up and a bunch of people are going to die and it's going to be a direct enough connection that I wonder, like, it's sort of like, it's sort of like the reductio ad absurdum of this whole thing. Like, what would it take to break through this media sort of haze? If, if honest to God, if this can't do it, then I think I'm ready to say that literally nothing can, because like this <laughs> is hack it, it in. <laughs> yeah, like like a like a genuine like a th hundreds of thousands of people dying as a direct cause of Republican incompetence. You're not going to ever get a clearer test case than yeah. that. So if the media cannot bring itself to say one side, not both sides, one side is fucking this up horribly. Then, then, like, we're just, there's just no hope. It's just like their their habits are set so deep that they're Im literally immune to events. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's uh, let's pin that and we'll circle back in six months <laughs> to that one. Right. Um, but on something more hopeful, I want to go to your your most recent article on the Virginia Democrats, and you've been kind of beating this drum for a long time about this really complicated, deep strategy. If you want clean energy and good progressive policy, there's this real trick that you can do, and it's called electing Democrats. And um, and Virginia did that. They have, you know, a majority and, and, and plus the governor. And they passed a really uh, big, ambitious, clean energy bill. And uh, as you mentioned, this is the first southern state to do this. And uh, I just want to, you know, kind of see here, you know, your thoughts on now that we have a lot of big states and it's and it's regionally relatively spread out now. We got New York and, you know, in New England, we got Virginia a little down south. We got California, we got Colorado and, you know, kind of the Rocky Mountains going for these ambitious clean energy bills while Republicans are doing nothing. I, my question is, do you think there will be enough cumulative impact of these big states doing this across the country that it'll kind of bring the rest of the country along, even in the absence of national policy? Is there some inertia, some kind of market-based kind of impact of all these bills that you think will, will finally move the country in the direction it needs to go? Well, I mean... It's hard to say. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess what I would say is, um, yes, on some time scale, right? I mean, obviously, yes, on time, on some time scale. Clearly, the train is moving in one direction, right? And and these massive economic shifts, the fall in in, in um, renewables prices, and now like natural gas and shale starting to come in under competition and, and starting to be exposed to sort of like debt ridden and, you know, these sort of economic shifts and political shifts are not going to reverse themselves. So it sort of stands to reason on some time scale, these trends become national and national policy will trail along behind. 
but as with everything, <laughs> you know, right. climate related, right. it's all about the, it's all about the timing. It's all about the speed. So, you know, the question is how fast these demographic shifts are going to occur. Like, like, as we, uh, like, as I said earlier, if we already had a democracy, we would already have national clean energy policy, right? We already got the numbers nationally. We're, so the question is how big does the numerical advantage have to get before it's big enough to overwhelm these structural barriers, which is, which is, hard to say a very difficult because because as we've seen republicans can find new barriers to raise all the time like mm -hmm. a, the more kind of frantic they get so so i think yes that's absolutely the only thing that is going to sway national policy and absolutely will sway it on some on some time scale i mean what happened in virginia you know is is another good microcosm of of the national scene which is like why did virginia turn blue there's no mystery to why it happened it just urbanized enough right like right. the urban rural divide is stark enough now that you can tell whether a state is red or blue based on on its urban like the, its relative urban and, and and rural populations that's almost the only metric that matters like the interesting thing in oregon and one of the things republicans frequently say is 26 of 28 uh oregon counties are opposed to this bill right and it's true it's true because almost all the state's democrats are in the state's cities which are in two of its counties right so so if you so if land had a vote land would just be killing this bill absolutely but but people are people right voters are voters and there's more people in those two counties than there are in the 26 other counties and it's the same thing that happened in virginia why did virginia go blue it urbanized. Like, why is any state going to go blue? It's going to urban. Why will a Texas eventually go blue? You know, because it's going to urbanize and urban populations tend, tend democratic. So, so it's not just that like um, uh, renewable energy uh, uh, financial trends are moving in the right direction, which they are, is that demographic trends are moving in the right direction. Uh, the country is urbanizing and as it does, it will turn blue and as it turns blue as i ha as i said in my post like you can you know you can trace you can trace the history of states turning blue by awesome clean energy legislation in its wake right it's, it's happening in cities and in states every jurisdiction where democrats take over they do this so on some time level on some time scale yes but like how is that trend going to play out against the backdrop of what looks like sort of like the crumbling of American democracy at the national level and the possible like dissolution of our major institutions and possible like birth of autocracy and maybe like violence in the streets? I mean, hell if I know how all that, how all that like interacts with all the rest of it, but like tidally beneath, you know, the tidal forces beneath all this surface crap are moving in the right direction. Right, right. Well, let me maybe kind of get a little more precise here. Because what I'm really thinking is, is the underlying economics, right? It's not so much that I think that the states will just kind of persuade, you know, the, the, the Democratic states will persuade Republican states, but that they're going to bring things to scale that are going to make the economics kind of unassailable. And I think, you know, this maybe goes with another part of my you know, question here, which is, you know, we're seeing oil markets crash now. You know, the coronavirus is, I think, yep. it's, oil and gas is down 40%. We're going to see huge bankruptcies across oil and gas and shale, a lot of unemployment and, and perfectly in the lead up to this election. Again, uh, in, in a kind of a, a interesting and big, important parts of the country, whether it's Pennsylvania or Texas. And in some ways, this has a negative because cheap fossil fuels makes it, you know, makes renewables less competitive. But I think the fact that it's going to be I mean, a lot less money for exploration and drilling and, and, and infrastructure investment for fossil fuel and maybe a disgruntled, disgruntled workforce as people are getting laid off by, you know, by the in yeah. large quantities. <clears throat> so I guess that's kind of one of the picture I'm trying to paint here is are the democratic states doing enough plus these macro forces that you think maybe the economics will just overwhelm the politics i guess kind of that's what i'm getting at. and again you don't have a crystal ball no one does but i'm just kind of curious your, your sense of that well it, there's an interesting parallel actually here between the demographics and the economics um 
So on the demographic side, as I, as I keep saying, the numbers are already there. So the reason it's not manifesting in radical changes in policy is because of these sort of legacy structural barriers. I think you can say almost the same thing on the economic side. Like I just did a post about coal globally and, this, and, and close analysis of the financial position of the world's coal plants and planned coal plants show that it is cheaper to build new renewables than new coal everywhere right now today and it is cheaper to build new renewables than to continue running existing coal plants for 60 percent of the coal plants in the world 70 yeah, percent of the 70 yeah, percent of the coal plants in china so this like is a is a sort of uh, telling example the the economics in raw numbers are already there like coal's already dead the the economics have moved so fast that they are where they need to be. But again, you're not seeing the radical transformations that you would expect with the economics there because all these legacy institutions, like how, like there's a, like there's hundreds of gigawatts of coal plants running around the world and almost all of them are uneconomic. Why are they running? Because, um, legacy, you know, sort of social and political arrangements. They're either protected by being in, 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 you know, sort of fully regulated markets, or they have political influence with lawmakers, or the, or the towns where they're located, the regions where they're located, don't want them to shut down because they're connected to their economies and lobby lawmakers. So it's, it's, it's not economics propping coal up. It's almost entirely these legacy social and political protections it has so it's like it's the same with the demographics like when will reality catch up with the demographics and it's the same with the economics like when will reality catch up with the economics we know it will happen right it's just another tidal force like you can't prop uneconomic <laughs> sources up forever like right. that that's just leaky and 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 you know it's just not gonna endure but it can endure a long time and it can endure a lot longer i think than than like your technocratic analyst would expect right yeah. i think our sort of technocratic analysts sort of think well like the economics are there the rational thing to do is switch like we'll just sit and wait for people to do the rational thing but like people don't do the rational thing individually or collectively a lot for a long time so it's kind of like an interesting net it's, it's an interesting kind of social science experiment like once you cut out the financial foundation from beneath fossil fuels how long will they totter on <laughs> like zombies <laughs> before they fall down it's like my my guess is longer than we would expect and longer than we might like. Right. So, so it's just hard to answer. It's just right. hard to answer that question. I mean, well, first of all, thanks. Things could happen. Yeah. Thanks for the zombie reference. Pre appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, like, um, that <laughs> um, but he, you know, I, obviously the, I think it, it, the, these, these uneconomic fossil fuel industry will, will last a lot longer in the United States because of all the things we've talked about. And, and in fact, you had a great article um, about the Ohio bill to prop up nuclear and yeah. I think coal and stuff that was just insane, like literally raising costs on people to prop up these dying industries. But outside of the U.S., what does your reporting see? Because it, it would seem that these forces that are, that are unique to the United States and are kind of undemocratic, I certainly don't apply to China. They don't apply to a lot of European nations that have real democracy. So any, any sense of, of whether this is going to be more of a U U.S. phenomenon relative to globally? Well, I mean, no, like China is, China is, if anything, the more sort of glaring case. Like, why is China <clears throat> about to build dozens of coal plants that will be uneconomic from the minute they start running, right? <laughs> like, <clears throat> I think we have, I think so, some of us here in the U.S. have kind of an inflated view of kind of the technocratic, you know, we have this vision of China as kind of this technocratic smart autocracy that is like planning and, 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 you know, doing things in a way the U.S. can't, but there's lots of legacy bullshit in China too. Like there's lots of, party influence at the local level or regional level there's lots of sort of like you know these coal plant owners being chummy with the party and protected there's just a million things going on in china too or else china's 
transition would be happening a lot faster. Like I don't, I think the the particular nature of the anti-democratic and legacy forces in the U.S. are of interest to us, but the general sort of like uh, Bias, momentum, sort of it's just yeah. momentum, right? Yeah. I mean, like you have a, 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 a an industry that has an enormous political and social momentum. All these relationships built up all these legacy practices and financial practices it just takes a long time for those to fade away and that's going to be true i think in almost every country interestingly what the report found about coal is in it's in the eu where coal is dying fastest and why is it dying fastest in the eu because eu energy markets are the closest thing probably to energy in the world to genuinely open, free, competitive markets. As I said in my post, the closer you get to an actually operating market, the worse coal does, the fastest coal fades, right? It, it, so like anywhere markets happen, coal dies. And right now EU has the best, smartest electricity markets. And so coal is dying. And so you can sort of like measure, it's almost like a one-to-one -one correspondence where there is more coal there is less market, right? There's more legacy cruft all over the system. There's more sort of backroom deals and financial special favors. It's, it's, a, it's an almost one-to-one -one correspondence. So I think the EU will profit and flourish by doing what it's doing, right? By, by transitioning its electricity system faster. Uh, so that's going to show like other countries are going to see that other regions are going to see that and eventually like it's gonna happen it's gonna happen but you know we're all just sitting here on like what feels like multiple time bombs <laughs> just yeah. without a without a lot of time to spare yeah yeah well it is interesting that if modern conservatism was consistent and sincere in its in its belief in markets they would oh, be yeah. arguing for <laughs> systems that would accelerate the decline of fossil fuels. Oh yeah, well, uh, they're, they're, <laughs> I, I think their their titular commitment to free markets is exactly analogous to their titular commitment to democracy. I.e., right. they were committed as long as it worked out the way they wanted, exactly. and their people and their industries came out on top. Right. It's their people and their industries being on top that is the real organizing principle here, and they will throw any principle overboard right. if it gets in the way right. of that they don't give a shit about free markets right. I mean, really right. we can all agree on that by now yeah yeah you you would hope <laughs> um all right well you know to wrap up here i have two kind of final political kind of bigger picture questions that are u.s context that i'd like to to kind of pose to you the first is you know you we were talking about you know our test of when the media will stop the both sides ism and you know and, and really point out in accurate consistent fashion the kind of undemocratic uh behavior of, of the right I, I, the, the thing i kind of the, the other side of the coin to that that i'd like to get your thoughts on is what the, the u.s media consistently fails to do is point out how extreme the republican party is relative to other conservative parties and and a perfect example of this is after boris johnston um won his, uh, you know, landslide in, in, in the, the election back in the UK in December, even in the National Review, the, for those lead headlines from these conservative writers, socialism loses big. And I said to myself, I said, this is ironic because, yes, um, the Labour Party was obviously pushing for a lot of socialist policy, but Boris Johnson is, you know, strongly defending literally a single payer universal health care system. <laughs> the Boris Johnson party is you know, strong on gun control. It's strong on women's rights. It's strong on climate change relative, you know. And so, you know, again, the Democratic Party would be almost a conservative party anywhere else. And the only right-wing party in the advanced world that is against climate change, is it against, you know, women's rights, is against gun control, is against, um, you know, renewable energy, is against universal health care, is, I mean, the Republican Party is off the fucking charts on every dimension. In fact, I've made the argument that, the, that they're actually farther to the right than the neo-Nazi parties of Europe, because the neo-Nazi parties believe in universal health care and climate change. They just hate immigrants, and the Republican right, parties right. hate immigrants, too. And so, and so I'm just curious if you think that is an important part of the coin, that Americans just don't understand how extreme the Republican Party is, and do you see any any notion of that changing in the media? 
I mean, yes, of course, that's part of the problem. Like I once did a, I once did a roundup of, I mean, I, I remember very distinctly this story. It was in the 2012 presidential election. They did a, uh, a voter, uh, you know, sort of uh, focus group, right? They got, they got a bunch of sort of swing voters together, voters who hadn't made up their mind together and asked them a bunch of questions, ran a bunch of stuff by them. And one of the things they did is describe Mitt Romney's economic proposals accurately, right? Cutting social security, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, asked, and asked the voters to respond to them. And the voters almost entirely refused to believe that it was an accurate description because as some of them said explicitly, we just don't believe that a politician would do that. We don't, <laughs> we, wow. it just, it sounds like a democratic attack on Republicans. When you accurately and fairly describe what Republicans propose to do, it sounds like a hysterical attack from the left. And why does it sound like that? Because, because people haven't been prepared, right? Like people haven't been told. So just the idea, like, we're so far in this both sides thing that now, in a sense, for the media to sort of back up and say, you know what, like, it's time for us to tell you, one of these two parties has gone off the deep end and is proposing genuinely crazy sociopathic things would be such a sharp break from everything the public's been told for decades that the public just wouldn't know how to process it at this point, right? Like the, the myths of squabbling politicians in DC and if both sides could just compromise a little, we could find a, you, you know, just blah, blah, all these sort of cliches are so deep in now that it's like, you almost need like, you know, it's like weaning someone off a drug. You have to do it gradually. <laughs> so, so, so it's not to shock their system. So, I mean, I don't want to predict anything along these lines because since I started following politics in like 2000, or, or like professionally as a job in like 2004, almost everything Republicans have done, like at the end of George W. Bush's first term, I remember very vividly thinking to myself, this will discredit the Republican Party for a generation. Like this has, even though the media is is terrible at conveying it like just the facts on the ground have made republican venality and 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 incompetence so visible and so obvious this will discredit the party for a generation they'll have to go into the wilderness they'll have to rethink their craziness they'll have to reconstitute as a reasonable sort of like conservative party like other conservative parties like you say around the world <clears throat> and come back and try again and instead like, <laughs> it, it, it all like all that responsibility and accountability vanished vanished over the course of like 10 months like it wasn't even a full year before the republican party was just reset and the media was just reset taking it at face value and giving it pr the presumption of good faith and the public just like forgot it all immediately and so that episode and several episodes since the Iraq war, like the, the 2008 recession, like voter suppression, like the Tea Party racism, every, you know, over and over again, I think, well, this is obvious, right? Like, we can't deny this. It's pretty like the, <laughs> the, the veil is finally off. And, and, you know, now here we are again at the reductio of this process with like Trump just openly breaking laws and like daydreaming about dictatorship and just like being wildly openly corrupt and incompetent. And once again, here I am thinking, well, like you can't deny this. <laughs> like it's pretty <laughs> like this time it's really, really obvious, but I've been wrong about that so many yeah. times now that I've finally trained myself to stop making that prediction. So like, yeah. You would think that corruption and incompetence and extremism, this flagrant, would break through, right, the sort of social mythology, the social narrative we've built up. But if there's one thing I've learned, honestly, one thing above all in my entire career, it's that those social mythologies are extraordinarily 
resilient. So, like, it's a it's an open question. Like, will a virus that Trump failed to stop kill a million people? And if it kills a million people, will that fucking do it? Like, right, right, <laughs> it right, seems right. like it would, but yeah, like hell if I know. Well, this this is kind of a perfect lead into the last question, which in some sense I, I feel like we've already answered, but I'll, I'll throw it out there anyway. You know, because thinking about the Iraq war, obviously prosecuted, prosecuted horribly. You know, maybe I could see some weird kind of pretzel logic of how, you know, the Middle East is crazy and it's unpredictable and war is hard, you know. And now virus, obviously his response, but people are looking at Italy and, you know, other advanced countries that are in lockdown, a lot of people dying. So... I can, I can kind of see the rationalization, but here's, here's the, the next point I'm thinking is, you know, Republicans in some, in some ways obviously have been insulated from their worst instincts in the sense that they really do want to take people's health care away. They really do want to cut Social Security. They do want to make abortion illegal and send women and perhaps doctors to jail. But they, you know, and they haven't been able to do the, the most extreme things. But I, I kind of feel like, like you said, with the Oregon you know, Republicans who just, you know, they, if they had reserved to use it on a rare time, maybe they could have gotten away with it. But then they're like, hey, anything, you know, that we don't like, we're going to do it. Do you think that maybe the, 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 the dog will finally catch the car, you know, and we'll finally see Repu <laughs> where, where the Republicans have their stamp on it, right? Like if Roe versus Wade is overturned, right? And like 22, I think, Republican states have automatic state constitutional amendments that like abortion is 100% illegal the day it happens, you know. If one of these crazy Obama lawsuits that, you know, a Republican attorney general's push that the Republican Supreme Court will accept and then boom, you know, 20 million people lose their health care. Yeah. Maybe this has to be something that's so direct. Republicans wanted this. They got it. And here's the result that there's just no obfuscation around. Maybe that's it again. I think I kind of already know where you're going to answer this. But, <laughs> yeah, maybe. but, you know, that, that's my like, that's my final kind of not hope but just that kind of observation but like why would that why would that break through if a if a if a massive pandemic right yeah i know i know doesn't you know what i mean like yeah, i, yeah, I mean yeah. one, of, one of the consequences of me no longer having any faith that there's anything big enough to break through is that yeah, i've yeah. definitely stopped even casually or glancingly allowing myself to sort of like daydream well like maybe they should just get what they want like maybe right. things just right. get really bad and then we'll all learn a lesson my fear is that what typically happens is things get really bad and we don't learn a lesson so i don't like right, wish right. <laughs> that anymore because we didn't seem incapable right. of learning uh learning lessons so maybe yeah. like the problem is the right has its whatever 30 percent of the country whatever you want to call it just completely epist epistemically locked up there is nothing like like people don't experience reality directly, right? Like they always, it's always mediated. So there's nothing that could happen in reality that couldn't be mediated by Fox News at all into a story that's complementary to the right. So I just think that like, I mean, may, like the thing about the virus is it's going to kill those people who are watching Fox and like, yeah. This to me is the ultimate test. Like if they literally are seeing people die around them, <clears throat> is, is, will that do it? And I think we can safely say, let's talk again in six months. I think we can safely say if that doesn't do it, Right. It's not doable, it's not right? Doable. Right. It was it was a democratic, you know, hoax and the, some QAnon from China. I mean, who yeah. knows what they'll right, make right, up? Right, I, right. My my imagination fails right. me. They'll make some bullshit. They will. Yeah. That that's yeah. Wow. It's 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 heavy stuff here. Well, you know, again, I guess on the energy stuff, some positive trends. Uh, we're not not sure there will be enough to overcome the political obstacles. The but the politics pretty bad. And look, if I could if I could wave a magic wand and get rid of this virus today, I would obviously do that. I don't want chaos and and destruction, even if it has a silver lining. But hopefully, hopefully, there will be some silver lining here in the sense of a, a democratic wave in November, and we can maybe even get the Senate back and have at least two years to, to try to do something, you know, reasonable for a change. Yeah, two years for for Biden to flail about, Republicans to block everything, and then mm -hmm. Republicans to utterly dominate the 2022 midterms. Oh, God. But at least we'll have those two years. Two, maybe, maybe we'll have two years where we don't have to be, like, struck by deep existential dread by politics every right. time we open our browsers. Maybe we can, like, go and – 
go a day or two without thinking about politics. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, again, at least we live in nice blue states where we can, um, you know, where we have some competent leadership. I mean, that, that's the kind of the benefit, I think, about being in the federal system, right, is that at least if you live in a blue state, you can have reasonably competent leadership, even if the national stuff is falling apart at the seams, you know, so. Uh, yeah, that's it. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much, David, for uh, taking the time again. It's always fascinating to talk to you. I will, um, you know, I'll put uh, links to your, your Vox page because your articles are always a must read for all of my students. And I urge all the listeners to, to, to kind of bookmark that and, um, you know, stay, stay healthy. All right, man. You too. All right. Cool. See you, Jason. Okay. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that interview with David. It's always a pleasure to speak with him and uh, always learn a lot. So uh, my antidote for today is very simple. It is to go and bookmark David Roberts' uh, page on Vox. It's going to be in the show notes. And just keep abreast of his columns. You know, he, he posts pretty regularly. His pieces are more in-depth. So sometimes it's, you know, a week or two before another piece. But His stuff is just outstanding, and uh, I think if you bookmark that, you will keep abreast of not only environmental issues, but also just kind of U.S. politics, and he's got his fingers on the pulse. So with that, everybody, uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of the week. Just want to add that uh, my podcast is now available on Spotify, so it's on iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And so please subscribe, share it with your family, friends, and colleagues, rate it. And uh, with that, everybody, stay safe, wash your hands a lot, and uh, to be continued.